I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 29 is what we'll be looking at this morning. We'll also be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11 uh, later on in the message. But um, I'm about to preach God's word like I've never preached it before, literally. All right, this is going to be awkward. So let's just get that out of the way right now. Uh, it's it's very different speaking to you through a camera, not being able to see your faces of confusion where I need to slow down and restate my, my, my thought to make it more clear to you. Um, on the plus side, I don't have to look at some of you nodding off. So I'll enjoy that. Um, but it, it, it should be awkward, right? We, we've said this before. Church is not supposed to be this way. But we do have to get over it. We have to move on. These are our circumstances right now, and God is still good. And he can use, and he will use, this difficult trial for his glory and for our good. Uh, I, I don't doubt that. And so there are two videos that I previously posted. If you didn't get a chance to watch those yet, I do encourage you to go back. The first is an introduction to our topic, and then the second is um, uh, an explanation of the four major views of the Lord's Supper. It's a little more technical, but I think it helps to set the stage for what we're going to talk about this morning. And so I do encourage you to, to watch those first if you haven't seen them already. Before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. We know that every time we open it, you speak. And so we want to come ready and anticipating you speaking to us, even even in the awkwardness of our isolation and, and our separation from one another. Um, we know that you're at work, that your spirit can use this even now to open our eyes, uh, to give us ears to hear, to soften our hearts, to respond in obedience to this truth, and uh, that we would be doers of your word and not hearers only. Lord, so, so use this time for your glory and for our good, for the edification of your people. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me Matthew 26, beginning in verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the, that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So let's begin by considering the first point, the institution of the Lord's Supper. All right, we know that, that in the context of this passage, they were celebrating the Passover. Uh, we see that in verses 17 through 25. And in fact, the, the meal had already begun, according to verse 26, as they were eating. So they were already eating, and then Jesus uh, takes a moment to institute something new that would replace the traditional Passover celebra celebration, right, moving forward. Jesus fulfills the Passover symbolism, and as the true Passover lamb, Jesus institutes this sacrament of the new covenant. So there's two elements that he used that were common staples in every meal, uh, bread and wine. And since it was the Passover, we know that Jesus used unleavened bread. 
There's little doubt about that. Look back at verse 17, which we didn't read. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus. So th this represented the, the haste in which the Israelites had to flee Egypt. Egypt. They, they had to eat their meals quickly. Right? They couldn't al uh, allow time for the, the yeast to leaven the bread. Uh, they had to, to flee immediately. So the New Testament, however, doesn't attach such importance to the kind of bread that's used in communion. Uh, there seems to be an indifference about it. And in fact, some go so far as to suggest that leaven is a better representation of the gospel because it represents the resurrection of Christ or the leavening of the gospel in, in, in the world as, as the church expands and spreads. Um, but that's not ever made explicit in the passages dealing with the Lord's Supper. Um, however, historically, in the early church, the evidence leans towards leavened bread. Leon Morris points out that the Eastern Church has always used leavened bread, and that that was the case in the West also until getting on toward A.D. 1000. Um, but what about the type of wine? Right? We know that it couldn't have been juice because juice didn't exist. Thomas Welch didn't invent juice until 1869. But what, what, what kind of wine was it? Was it red or, or white? Well, John Calvin says this, and he's talking about just all external forms, um, and so, but he'll get to the idea of what kind of bread and what kind of wine should be used. He says this, In regard to the external form of the ordinance, whether or not believers are to take into their hands and divide among themselves, or each is to eat what is given to him, whether they are to return the cup to the deacon or hand it to their neighbor, whether the bread is to be leavened or unleavened, and the wine to be red or white, is of no consequence. These things are indifferent and left free to the church. So, given Calvin's reasoning, I imagine he would have allowed juice to be another valid option. It's still fruit from the vine, even though it's not fermented. Um, so, what's, what's far more important than the type of bread and wine that is used is the meaning that they represent. Right? That, is, that is what's clearly the focus in all of these passages, is, is the meaning that they portray, that they convey. Right? The bread is Christ's body, given for his people, according to Luke twenty two nineteen. The bread is broken. It symbolizes Christ's death on the cross. Likewise, in reference to the cup, Jesus says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And that language of blood and pouring is, is sacrificial language. It's a reference to the, the violent death that Jesus would undergo on the cross, that he would suffer. And so, really, both the bread and the cup refer or point to his death. And it's regarding his forgiveness for sins. And so, the first thing I want to say is that unbelievers must receive forgiveness of sins before partaking in the Lord's Supper. The blood of Christ was poured out on the cross for all who place their faith in him. And so this itself is an offer to you. Right? If you're an unbeliever, this is something that you can do on your own. You don't have to wait till churches reopen and, and you can gather and meet with the pastor. You can do this right now. You can meet your Savior. You can turn away from your sin and repentance and place your faith in Him. But this meal that we're talking about, this Lord's Supper, is for believers. 
Right? Every time we participate in the sacrament, it serves as a reminder of our need for forgiveness. That we humbly come before the Lord and we freely confess our sins. We confess how we daily fall short of the glory of God. This confession should take place privately and corporately. It should take place daily in our private lives and it should take place when we gather together corporately. And it should certainly take place at some point before taking the Lord's Supper. The good news is that Jesus holds out that cup of blessing to you that you might once again be assured of your pardon, that you've been acquitted by the blood of Christ. You can confess your sin freely, knowing that Jesus will not pull that cup away from you. In fact, he already drank the cup of God's wrath so that you might drink the cup of blessing in communion with him. That's why we partake as often as we gather. That's why we partake frequently. We'll talk about that more later, but it's the fact that Christ drank the cup of God's wrath on our behalf so that we might drink the cup of blessing in communion with him. And so he encourages disciples, he encourages them with these words, drink of it, all of you. It implies a, a corporate gathering of the disciples in that first meal, that, that uh, first institution of the Lord's Supper. And it points forward to the corporate gathering of the saints in every age since. Paul, Paul could have encouraged the Corinthian church uh, to partake in the Lord's Supper from home. But he makes it clear, he makes a clear distinction between eating and drinking at home and participating in the Lord's Supper at church. Uh, he explicitly states, in fact, that the Lord's Supper represents their unity as the body of Christ. Listen to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And so it's not something you should be doing isolated. It's not something you should be doing on your own, by yourself. Uh, it, it, and in order to gain a, a fuller understanding, I do encourage you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11. A few more passages there will help us understand the explanation of the Lord's Supper. Now that's the second point in this message, the explanation of the Lord's Supper. So you have the institution of the Lord's Supper. It's in the Gospels. We didn't look at the parallel accounts, but it's the same thing said in Mark and Luke. Um, there's a, a few subtle differences, but the, the substance is the same. But then in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul gives us some fuller understanding of this meal. And the first thing we see is that there's a variety of names that are attached to this meal. Uh, should we call it communion? Should we call it the Lord's Supper? Should we call it Eucharist? All of these terms are actually biblical. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16, he says it's communion or participation or even fellowship in the blood of Christ. And so there we see communion. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20, we see when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Right? The Corinthians were gathering, to, gathering together. They were celebrating this meal um, which they thought was, was honoring Christ's institution of it. But Paul rebukes them. He says, you're not, you're not taking part in the Lord's Supper. That's not what you're doing. All right, so there you see the same name, the name of the Lord's Supper given. Uh, just a few verses later in chapter 11, verse 24, uh, it says that he had given thanks. And that word had given thanks comes from the Greek Eucharist. So you can call it communion, Lord's Supper, um, Eucharist. 
they, they're all valid terms for this institution of a meal. Right? We should also point out the difference between a sacrament and an ordinance. Some people um, have a problem calling it sacrament. And the way the Westminster, uh, the authors of the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism defined sacrament is this. They said it's a holy ordinance instituted by Christ. That's in question 92 of the Shorter Catechism. It's a holy ordinance instituted by Christ. And so the proper participation actually brings genuine spiritual benefits. That's why it's called a sacrament. It's, it's not simply the, the mere blessing of obedience, but there are genuine spiritual benefits attached to the right partaking of the Lord's Supper. And so we do recognize that there's a mystery in this. Right? It's not something that we can scientifically explain, but we believe that there are true spiritual blessings attached to the proper taking of the Lord's Supper. And to suggest that the Lord's Supper is merely an ordinance is to remove those in intrinsic benefits and blessings from proper participation. Uh, and so it becomes this a mere exercise in obedience rather than Christ spiritually nourishing his people, which is the way that, that Scripture tends to explain this. Right? Especially think about John 6. So the Lord's Supper is a, a command. Do this in remembrance of me. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. Right? It's a command. Do this. You're not to neglect it. You're to do this. Uh, but it's also good for you. Right, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? There's this unique blessing that is attached to the fellowship and communion that we enjoy with Christ in the Lord's Supper. Uh, I believe it was Legan Duncan who explained it in seminary like this. He said, in the sacrament, we receive the same Christ, but we receive more of him. It's the same Christ, but we receive more of him. There's something unique and special about the sacraments that we should treasure, that we should value. And so Paul was discouraged, utterly discouraged by the corrupt practices of the Corinthian church who were making a mockery of the Lord's Supper. Uh, some were going hungry while others were getting drunk. And after describing the, the proper order that was to be practiced, he warned them not to participate in an unworthy manner. Right? He, he says in verse 29 of chapter 11, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's a sober warning. It's not to be taken lightly. When we, whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's important that a minister properly fence the table. And this, I think, is where the broader evangelical church has really missed the mark. Uh, there is no, virtually no explanation of, of how to partake of the Lord's Supper in a proper manner. And there's virtually no warning of partaking in an unworthy manner. Uh, it, what is meant to be a blessing can actually become a curse if, if you partake improperly. Uh, that is what Paul says in no uncertain terms. And so the authors of the confession say that the one administering the sacrament should be a minister of the word lawfully ordained. And that's consistent with the examples that we find in Scripture. It's the minister's duty to teach and edify the saints through the proclamation of God's word. 
And there should be a, a proper concern and care for the protection of the gospel so that men go through an ordination process, right? That they have their call confirmed, that they study to show themselves approved. And that that, that proclamation of the word is very much a part of the Lord's Supper. You cannot practice the Lord's Supper detached from the proclamation of God's word. And that's another reason why you shouldn't be partaking of it separately as you're in, in the home, as a family. Right? You, you need the minister to be proclaiming the word of God, and the Lord's Supper should be attached to that. Right? Uh, um, we, we hear this in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we often talk about the Lord's Supper as being a visual proclamation of the gospel. In the preaching of God's word, we hear the gospel, but in communion, we taste and see that the Lord is good. It's, 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 they're both a means of grace, preaching God's word, as well as the sacrament. And, and they're both attached to the proclamation of God's word. Under the Mosaic covenant, animals had to be sacrificed. Right? Their blood was shed, and then Moses confirmed the covenant with the people by throwing blood on them. You can read that in Exodus chapter 24, verse 8. It's, it's gruesome. And it's meant to be gruesome. He, he literally throws the blood of the sacrifice, the sacrifice upon the people as, because it's a representation of the curse of disobedience. If they disobey let, let, disobey, let it happen to me what's been done to this animal. However, under the new covenant, Jesus Christ became the sacrificial lamb. He endured the wrath of God. When he died upon the cross, he became a curse on our behalf. He, uh, Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why were we st- were still mocking him? Why were we still enemies? Christ died for us. In this way, Christ took the curse that we deserved upon himself guaranteeing our inheritance of the covenant blessings. Right, so the Westminster Confession of Faith goes on to teach that the sacraments are both a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace. And as a sign, the visible bread and wine represent the invisible benefits of our union with Christ. And as a seal, the elements of the Lord's Supper confirm our interest in Christ. They, they testify of our belonging to him. It's as if God is marking us out as his own. Uh, we, we simply cannot take these truths lightly. This is a, a blessing for his covenant people. We ought to relish the celebration of the Lord's Supper knowing that they are truly a means of grace. I, I believe every, or the early church celebrated communion weekly. According to Acts uh, 20, verse 7, where it says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. Their purpose of gathering together on the first day of the week was to break bread. It's the same language of the Lord's Supper, which means that they did this regularly on the first day of the week. They gathered to sit under the teaching of the apostles, to break bread, and to pray together, and to sing and to enjoy the means of grace as a community. We celebrate communion weekly at Grace Clovis because of the immeasurable spiritual benefits that it brings. Why would we ever want to limit that to once a month or even quarterly? 
if, if we truly believe there are genuine spiritual benefits attached to the Lord's Supper, then we ought to desire to participate frequently. Right? The Spirit of Christ is at work in and through the sacrament as we partake by faith. All right, we cannot neglect our duty, nor would we ever want to forsake the privilege of gathering together for this purpose. We take the elements with all due reverence and sober mind. We, we recognize the serious warning given by Paul right, to partake in an unworthy manner that would turn this blessing into a curse. It would turn something that's meant to be a, a benefit to us into judgment upon us. Um, but we also come celebrating. It's, it's the same idea that we share often about coming to worship with reverence and joy. We come with humility, recognizing that we're not worthy, that we are sinners, right? and that we can come freely confessing that sin, knowing that we hear his assurance of pardon. And so then, instead of being down in shame and condemnation, we experience joy in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. So we come with faith that looks forward uh, to the return of Christ. And that's really where the passage concludes in Matthew. Matthew chapter 26, verse 29. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When we take communion, we ought to have in mind the future anticipation of the heavenly banquet. John in Revelation describes this as the marriage supper of the Lamb. We looked at that from Revelation 19 verses 6 through 10 several weeks ago. And on that day, we know that the bride of Christ will be clothed. The bride of Christ that represents his believers right, will be clothed in the righteousness that Christ himself has accomplished for and through her by the washing of his word. And so all the sacramental meals that we enjoy in this present age are a mere shadow of the reality that we will enjoy for all eternity. And so we look forward to the day where we can gather again and we can celebrate once again the Lord's Supper. But all the more we should look forward to that future day where we are no longer hindered by sin, where we're no longer separated by this fallen world. Um, we can come and we can enjoy communion face to face with our savior for all eternity that's our hope let's pray heavenly father we thank you that you've given us this hope that you've given us this inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading that it's kept in heaven for us lord we look forward to the day when we become the full recipients of that inheritance. When we sit down for the marriage supper of the Lamb with the, with the entire, the full bride of Christ from every age, from every nation, from every tribe and language and people, when we gather together at the, at the foot of your throne and we worship you in no longer hindered by sin, no longer separated from one another, no longer hindered even by the confusion of, of language. Lord, we will be in glory 
we'll be able to enjoy the full privileges and benefits that Christ purchased on our behalf. And so, Lord, fill us with a, a joy and an anticipation for that day. And even now, as we cannot gather together as a community, Lord, give us a longing for the day when we can return and we can celebrate the Lord's Supper and we can receive the means of grace and all the benefits that you hold out to us in that meal. May we give you the glory each time we do. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.